from the second chapter of Genesis. We're going to start reading with verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. So let us stand out of reverence for the reading of the Word of God. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh of that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You may be seated. Last week we began looking at this section in Genesis that begins with chapter 2, verse 4, and goes through chapter 4. Genesis is a very organized book. In the first chapter, you see God setting the stage, creating the theater of grace, whereupon the, the play, the drama of, of redemption, would play out throughout all of the history of mankind. And the bit then beginning with chapter 2, verse 4, and going through verse uh, chapter 4, he introduces us to the main characters in that play and uh, shows us the main props, which characters and props will influence mankind throughout history. Last week, we saw the creation of Adam, that it was literally done as God described it here. We explained what that uh, implied for the constitution of the human being. That the human being is not a soul trapped in a body. That a human being is not a three-part soul, spirit, and man uh, and body. That a human being is not simply a body with no spiritual part. But that a human being is a physical, spiritual being. He's always physical and he's always spiritual. God reached down and made man out of the dust of the ground. Didn't just make a body of man, made man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, a living person. So that Jesus, as we've said many times, didn't come just to save your soul. He came to save you. Body and soul. And he's going to raise your body from the grave someday. And you're going to spend eternity, body and soul, in the presence of Almighty God. And what makes death so terrible is that it rips apart that unity of the human person. 
it rips apart the body and the soul, which will be healed on Resurrection Day. And then we spent most of our time talking about one of the most important things in the Bible, which very few Christians understand. And we saw in, in verse uh, 18, God said to Adam, uh, excuse me, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall die. And in those sentences, those short little sentences, we have presented to us what's called in theology the covenant of works. God always, when he, when he uh, involves himself in the life of man, always involves himself in terms of a covenant. And the covenant of works God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden, it's not the covenant of grace. It's got grace in it. We'll talk about that another day. It's not the covenant of grace. It's not the grace, the covenant, praise the Lord, that we live under today. It is a completely different covenant. And then when Adam failed, God entered into a second covenant with him, which is a covenant and a bond based on sheer grace. So what is the covenant of works? Just to review, the covenant of works is that bond that God established with man, not with Adam, not simply as a private individual, but as a public person representing all his descendants. That is the whole human race. So that whatever Adam did while he was in the Garden of Eden, all of his descendants would experience the consequences of. He was the covenant head of the entire human race. Now the word covenant doesn't appear there in the second chapter. But all the ingredients of a covenant do. And, but the covenant of works does appear in Jeremiah 33 and in Hosea 6. Where Hosea says, like Adam, Israel transgressed her covenant. So that is, Hosea said, as Adam transgressed the covenant made with him, so Israel transgressed the covenant made with her. So you have the covenant of works. Whatever Adam did, all human beings experience the consequences of. That's why all of us are born sinners. That's why all of us have sinful natures. That's why all of us die. Because of our great-great-great-granddaddy and our union with him. You remember in Romans 5.12, it says, By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, for all sinned. And that word sinned, remember, is in a past tense in Greek called the aorist tense that denotes a single action in past time. So what it says is, for all sinned, is there was a moment in history when every single human being that ever has lived or ever will live sinned in that moment. And that was the moment that our covenant head Adam ate of the tree of good and evil and defied God and decided he was going to live in terms of his own definitions and his own boundaries and his own uh, principles rather than submit to the living God.
Then God sent his son Jesus into the earth, established a covenant of grace with us. And here's the thing to remember. The last Adam, Jesus, did what Adam failed in doing. And that's the basis of our salvation. What is it that Adam failed to do in the covenant of works? Obey God. God said, if you obey me, you'll live forever with an unlosable life. But if you disobey me just once, you eat of the tree, you'll plunge yourself and all of your descendants into death, judgment, and sin. And that's where we'd all be if Jesus had not come and did what Adam failed to do. You know, nowhere in the Bible is Jesus called the second Adam. So don't call him a second Adam. That means there may be a third or a fourth. He's called the last Adam. There was the first Adam. There was the great granddaddy of the human race. And then the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, came for a body of people that he represented so that whatever he did, they experienced the consequences of. So in Romans 5, we read about Jesus' obedience. And because of his obedience, uh, we are forgiven. Our lives are changed. We have eternal life. We're declared righteous by Almighty God himself. You will not be able to understand the covenant of grace if you don't understand the covenant of works. And you'll never understand the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ unless you understand the covenant of works. Because the covenant of grace is a covenant of works for Jesus. He came to obey God perfectly in our place and then count that perfect obedience to our account. So what does Romans 5.12 say, uh, the fifth chapter? It says we're saved by obedience. Not our own. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. But we are saved by the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, obeying God in our behalf and in our place, and then charging that obedience to our account as if we obeyed God ourselves. So make sure you understand the covenant of works. Now we come today to two interesting things in this second chapter, the creation of woman and the creation of marriage. Or let's put it this way, God's creation of woman and God's creation of marriage. Notice in the 18th chapter, verse, after Adam had named all the animals, and that was, took a great amount of work and a great amount of wisdom because a name catches the gist of somebody's character. And Adam just didn't flip a coin and say, okay, I'm going to call you a moose and I'm call, going to call you a, por a porcupine. He gave them names that fit their character. Took a lot of thinking. Adam was not some caveman whose knuckles dragged on the ground. This was a brilliant man. He was created in all maturity. And his wife was created in all maturity. 
And so he named the animals. Also, when you name somebody, that implies that you have authority over them. That's why God never lets a human being name him. him. So Adam named the animals, meaning that he had dominion, just like God said, and was to use the animals of creation and all the resources of creation to build a civilization down through his generations to the glory and honor of Almighty God. So God's looking at Adam, naming all these animals, male and female, and he said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. All these animals have males and females. Adam's all by himself. It's not good for Adam to be all by himself. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Or as the King James says, I'll make him a helpmeet. I'll make him a companion. I'll make him somebody that he can live life with. I'll make him somebody that he can face all the joys and sorrows of life with and not have to live alone in this life. I'll make him a helpmeet. So he created a woman. But let me tell you what a helpmeet also means. Helpmeet means mirror. God created woman as a mirror for man. Now what does that mean? That means as man looks into the life of the woman God gave him, he can see how he's doing as husband. As man looks into the mirror of his woman, he can discern how good he's doing as a husband. Is her countenance one of joy and contentment? Is it one of depression and despair or bitterness or sadness? It's the man that's to criticize himself. I read a novel one time by a person who was sort of a Christian. And uh, it was about a man and, and his wife that were both reporters. They were both journalists. And they were international journalists. They would travel all over the world writing articles. They didn't have much of a marriage. They didn't see each other very much. And whenever they were in the same city together in some place in the world, they'd always get together. And so one time, after they'd been married for several years, they meet in a bar. And they talk. And the man looks at his wife. And he says to himself, her face is a face like leather. Deep wrinkles cutting into that leather. It's yellowish looking because of her chain smoking. And then he started thinking back when they got married at the softness of that face and the sweetness and the beauty of that face and what she once looked like. Then he came back to reality, looked at her again, 
and said, I made that face. She has leathery skin with wrinkles and a yellow tint to it because I failed as a husband. So, husbands, remember the reason God gave you that wife is not just to help you live this life so you don't have to live it by yourself, but as a mirror to see how good you're doing as a husband. So, in verse 19, here's how God made woman. Now, remember, this is not mythology. This is not metaphor or figure of speech. God actually created the first woman just exactly as it says here in Genesis. Then the Lord God said, stop before we get any farther. You remember in the first chapter of Genesis, God is simply called God, Elohim, which means in Hebrew, the omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful God. Then in chapter 2, he's called Jehovah Elohim, Yahweh Elohim. He's the creator, but he's also Jehovah, and that's the name of the covenant God. He wants people to know that as he describes the main persons and props of this play at this stage, that he's not only the creator of this theater, he's the main actor. That he is the one that enters in to a covenant of grace and mercy with the human race. He is Jehovah. So verse 19, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Oh, we've already read that. I want to go down to verse uh, 20. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. You remember how God described the creation of man? He created him, reached down and formed a man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. He really did it just like that. That creation was special and unique and direct. Now, Eve's creation is no less special than the creation of Adam. He puts Adam to sleep, and then he takes one of Adam's ribs and then closes up the wound, and then he fashions, fashions a woman with that rib he took from Adam. You know what Augustine said? He said, notice where God took the bone from by which he made Eve. He didn't take the bone from Adam's head so she could lord it over him. He didn't take the bone from Adam's foot 
so he could lord it over her. He took the bone from his side near his heart and under his arm to be loved and to be protected. So it's amazing everything this short little chapter says about marriage. This is the model for all marriages. Uh, It's a man and woman, not two men, not two women, man and woman becoming one. So that all homosexual marriages are perversions of the natural order and the created model for all people. So he fashioned into a, that rib into a woman, which he'd taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now remember, Adam has never seen anything like this before. So God creates, wakes Adam up, and the first thing Adam sees when he wakes up is this perfect woman resplendent in full womanhood. And he starts singing. (laughs) Uh, You can see it here, but you can't see it the King James in verse 23. And the man said, and you see it has the form of a poem because he starts singing. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What's funny is when he looked at her in all her beauty and glory, he called her this. Whatever this is, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now what does it mean to say that a woman and a man are bone of each other's bones and flesh of each other's flesh. To say that she was bone of his bone is to say the structure of her life was the structure of Adam's life. They shared the same skeleton, so to speak. And she is flesh of my flesh. The life of her is the life of me. We are one flesh in the deepest sense of the word. We share the same skeleton. We share the same life. We are one flesh. And that's why it's so terrible when a husband or wife says, well, I need a little space to his wife. We're not getting along that well, and I just need a little space. I can tell you honestly, I've never said that my whole life. And we should never say that. Imagine your arm say, well, I need a little space for my body, so I'm going to rip myself off of the body and get things better and then come back. One bone, one flesh, flesh of each other's flesh, bone of each other's bone. You never need space. 
you need deeper unity. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now let's talk about prepositions. If you notice the prepositions here, you'll be able to understand your womanhood. Because this is not only the model for marriage, this is the model for every woman. Notice what it says about her. First preposition. She was created with Adam. God created them in his image. Male and female he created them and said to them, both of them, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and exercise dominion over it. That is as much Eve's responsibility as it is man's. It's not just the man's duty. She was created with Adam and given the same dominion mandate and she's to use the strengths and gifts and talents that God has given her to share with her husband in the talents and strengths that, he, that God gave him to exercise dominion over the earth and to create civilizations the glory of God. That's also one of the purposes of marriage. The purpose of marriage is not simply procreation. The purpose of marriage is not simply uh, companionship. The purpose of marriage is not simply completion. The purpose of marriage is to join lives to extend God's kingdom in the world. You married that person because you knew you could serve God better with him or with her than you could by living by yourself. Years ago, there was a couple that I was giving marital counseling to. I thought they were both great Christians. He was a pre-ministerial candidate. He knew the Bible. She knew the Bible backwards and forwards. So I was all excited about marrying them. This is going to be a, a model marriage. So I, I married them. And after about a year, they hated each other. They were at each other's throats. They couldn't stand even being with each other. So they came to me for counseling, and I said, what in the world is wrong? I thought you all were going to have a model marriage. So they described me their lives, and they were just sick of each other. I mean, they all spent all their time with each other 24 hours a day. And they just got sick of each other. And they didn't have a ministry. They didn't have a ministry that they could work on together in, in spreading the gospel and advancing the purposes of God. God caused you to get married so that you could participate with your spouse in a marriage. And if you don't do that, you pretty soon get sick of each other. So what's your ministry? What do you and your wife do to help spread the gospel together and to help uh, influence 
this culture together and to create a new civilization of the glory of God together. What do y'all do together? I mean, that's a serious question. Doesn't have to be anything profound. Becky and I have, among all our other ministries, this sounds facetious, but it's not. We have a ministry called a, rest, a, a restaurant ministry. <laughs> that is, uh, since all, everybody's flown to Coop, we go out to eat. <laughs> and uh, we've committed that somebody, if we can do it, will not get it within arm's reach so we don't tell them some, something that's true. We may not be able to get the whole gospel in, but we can tell them something that's true hoping that somebody else will come in and tell them something else is true. And God has blessed that. We've had people come to church. We've had people come for counseling. Just a little thing. Uh, now, if you do that, uh, you, you, you got to tip well. <laughs> because if you witness to this waitress and then you're a lousy tipper, you have just betrayed the gospel. <laughs> So, the reason God made man and woman one in marriage is so that they could share a ministry. This afternoon, get with your wife or your husband and say, what are we doing? We just come in the same house, we eat together, and that's about it. What are you doing? This is the model. Are you measuring up to the model? Verse 22, And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. First preposition, Eve was made with Adam. Second preposition. Eve was made from Adam. That is, God literally took a bone from Adam's side and out of that bone made a woman. Now what does that mean? That's a unique way of being created, don't you think? Well, breathing breath into the nostrils of some dust on the ground is also a unique way of being created. And to say that she was created from Adam is to say that one sex is not more ultimate than the other. That one sex is not superior to the other. They both ha were specially created. And she was created from Adam. So the male is not superior to the female. And the female is not superior to the male. Now, we're going to see as time goes on that the woman is to be functionally subordinate to the man, but she in no way is inferior to him. Why would you want to marry somebody that's inferior to you? You men have got to be willing to admit and be humble enough to admit that there are many areas in which your wife is superior to you and you are inferior to her.
And God calls you all to become one flesh so that her superior superiorities will fill, fill in your inferiorities and your superiorities will fill in hers so that together you'd be more effective in serving Christ than you would by yourself. So Eve was made from Adam specially, directly by God so that you'd know that one sex is not superior to the other. Third preposition. This is what our culture hates. Eve was made for Adam. God says it's not good for you to be alone. I will make a, make a help meet for you. After God created Eve from the rib of Adam, he brought her to the man. He didn't bring the man to her. He brought her to the man. So understand that in the scriptures over and over again, though you are equal insofar as you're both made equally in the image of Almighty God, that the woman has a role, a very important role, of functional subordination to the man. That in the marriage, the man is the head, not a petty dictator, but he's the head, and the woman is the submissive, submissive loving wife. The future and welfare of the marriage is his responsibility. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And you can see how God uses the model of Adam and Eve as the model for Christian marriage. And let's start reading in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Submit to them, not because the husband's perfect, which he's not, but because out of all the men in all the world that you could have had, this is the man God wants you to have. To be your head. And submit to him. Because that's your responsibility from the Lord. The Lord created you to submit to him. For the, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so all the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now that doesn't mean in every single little thing. It means that your submission to your husband must be life-wide. Now when God says the wives are to be submissive to their husbands, that does not give the husband permission to be a petty dictator and to tell her what to do. 
if any of you men have ever had to say to your wife, obey me because I'm your husband and I'm the head. You have failed, not your wife. Mirror. And he's to be the head of the home, responsible for its welfare. His shoulders are broader than hers to carry the load. But he is to be the head of the head of the family like Jesus is the head of the church. How is Jesus the head of the church? The Son of Man came not to, ser to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So that the Son of God is our King and our leader, and he leads us by serving us. And that's the way a husband leads his wife. It's hard enough for her to submit to you because of all the sin in your life. And it's your responsibility to make it as easy as possible for her to submit to you. Not because she trusts you. Not because she's confident that you're going to make the right decision every time. Because she trusts God. And God put that man in her life. And she trusts that God knows exactly what he's doing. To give him to her and her to him. And she praises God for that. You know, there is a verse in the New Testament that if Genesis 2 does not literally describe the creation of man and woman, this verse makes no sense whatsoever. I love to read this verse to evolutionists because it does not make sense if evolution is true. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This passage explains why a woman's hair should be longer than her husband's. And it says in verse 10, Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, which is her long hair. It says that later on in the text. Because of the angels. Now what does that mean, because of the angels? I have no idea. So let's move on to verse 11. However, in the Lord, neither is a woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, what in the world does that mean if evolution's true? <laughs> For the woman originates from a man, from the rib. So also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. The creation of the first woman was unique. Everything after that was births.
For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. And therefore neither is the woman independent of man, nor is the man independent of woman. So much for feminism. So much for chauvinism. So let's go back to Genesis 2. Verse 24. For this cause, what cause? This cause that results from each other being the other skeleton and flesh of each other's flesh, or they participate together in the dominion mandate in marriage. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, leaving and cleaving. If a young man's not mature enough and not in a position where he can leave the dependency of it to his father and start his own family and be independent, he should not get married yet. I tell young men in the marriage counseling that if you're not able to support your wife on your salary, don't get married yet. I told that to a young man. He didn't believe me. So he came back about a month or two later and said he wanted to marry this girl. On me to, uh, uh, it's my daughter, actually. <laughs> and uh, I said uh, uh, can you support her on your salary and he said no I said no <laughs> so then he came back a few months later he said I want to marry your daughter I said can you support her on your salary yes sir now that I have two jobs <laughs> So that's a serious thing. You don't want to get married and you not be able to support your wife. If your marriage is, is dependent upon your and her finances, what happens when she has a baby? If the financial structure of your house falls to the ground, you're the head. And so a father, a, a man, when he gets married, is no longer a dependent of his father. As long as he's dependent upon his father, he should not get married. He should leave his father's house and become the head of his own house. A, a, a single man that's not married but is not dependent upon his father but supports himself, he, he is the head of his own house, even though there's only one in that house. In our church, if you're going to vote in a congregational meeting, you've got to be a mature man who's the head of your house and not a dependent upon your father. That doesn't mean you have to be married with children in order to vote. But it does mean that even if you're a family of one, you've got to be master of your own house and independent of your father's money and dependent 
upon yourself under God. And cleave to his wife. Becky and I were looking at the English words that have more than one meaning, and those meanings are opposite. Cleave means to cut something in two with a hatchet. <laughs> or it can mean cling to somebody. And so that's what he's saying here. You leave your father. You don't leave the family. You keep the family name. You're carrying on the family name. You're carrying on the family tradition. The families in the Old Testament were just one man and one wife and a child. They were grandparents, aunts and uncles. There's a whole clan carrying on the family name and maintaining the family ground. But in this thing of becoming your own man, you're not an autonomous man. Cling to your wife. Don't think for one second you can live this life without her. Make sure she knows that you can't live this life without her. Leave your father and mother. Cling to your wife. And then the last verse. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. No shame. No guilt. Because no sin. In perfect love and perfect holiness. Together before the smiling face of God. That's the kind of marriage you want to have. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for telling us these things. Thank you for answering some of the most important questions that we have. We're thankful that we're not dependent upon the humanist and his fake answers. We thank you that we can trust these answers. And help us to teach our children to trust them as well. For Christ's sake, amen. Let us stand and confess our faith in the triune God as we recite the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the resurrection body. Amen. You may be seated. You know, a communion service is a wedding ceremony, a wedding reception. It's traditional in this country that 
after you have a wedding, you have a reception, everybody gets together and celebrates that new union. That's what every Lord's Supper is. It's a wedding reception when we get together and we celebrate the fact that the church is married to a wonderful bridegroom and that that union of bride and bridegroom is eternal. And the wedding reception of the Lord's Supper is simply an anticipation of the greatest wedding reception of all time in the marriage supper of the Lamb right after we're raised from the dead. Let us pray. Father, may we take the Lord's Supper today.